Good morning, everybody. Welcome this morning. I'll just pray and we'll get started. Thank you, Father, for this beautiful day, this opportunity to meet together, Lord, on Resurrection Sunday. And Father, we just pray that you will help us to continue to grow in our faith, that, Lord, that you will cause us to understand your word. And we thank you that you have written the future in advance. Lord, history is his story. It's your story. And prophecy is simply history written in advance. So we just pray that you help us to fully appreciate how big you are, how awesome you are, and that you are completely in control. So we just praise you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're going through the book of Revelation. Last week, we saw that the book of Revelation was broken up into two different types of chapters. Some of the chapters are chronological, and some of the chapters are vignettes, or like little stories, side stories, that explain the main characters' events and organizations that you find in the book of Revelation. So this week, we're going to actually go verse by verse through Revelation chapter 6, and we're going to cover the six seal judgments. So the tribulation is about to begin. And I'm just going to go through the first six seal judgments as a summary before we actually read the chapter, just so you have a big picture view of chapter six and you know what we're talking about. Okay, so here goes. The first seal, the Antichrist is revealed and comes to power. The second seal, the Antichrist promises peace, but the result is war, a world war. The third seal, the world war causes famine and disease. The fourth seal, as a result of the war, famine and disease, and wild beasts, a quarter of the world's population is killed. The fifth seal, during this time there is a massive persecution of the tribulation saints, those who believe during the tribulation. Many are martyred or killed for the word of God and for being faithful in their ministry and in their testimony of the word of God. And the sixth seal, there is a massive earthquake and other cosmic disturbances and the people of the earth recognize that these judgments are from God and they fear both God's judgment or judgments and God's presence. So that's a very interesting one, though. All right, so I'm just going to jump in now, and we're going to read Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 to 17. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, 
Come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth, to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer, until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who would be killed as they were, was completed. I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth, as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? So, here we have Jesus opening each of the seals. Okay, and it starts off by saying, when he opened the fifth seal, for example, he is Jesus. Jesus is the one opening the seals. And we also have these four angels involved in the first four seals. These four angels we'll learn about in a little while, but these are the four angels around the throne. So, you probably heard of these four horsemen before in verses 1 to 8. These four horsemen are often called the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and apocalypse means unveiling or revealing. So, first up, let's take a look at the first seal. The white horse brings a man of conquest in verses 1 and 2. So, I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 again. Now I saw, when the Lamb opened one of the seals, 
And I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now here's a little thing I was listening to, uh, Hal Lindsey, and uh, he was saying that one of the greatest tools you can have when studying the Bible is a sanctified curiosity. He has six friends that help him understand who, why, when, how, what, and so what. (laughs) So as we go through, we're going to be asking some of those questions. So I'm going to give an overview or summary of what these first two verses mean, then go back and break it down phrase by phrase and look at and cross-reference other scriptures that relate to the Antichrist. And we're going to say that this is not an isolated scripture. This is a combination of many passages that talk about the Antichrist. Now it's important that we get this right because there are many who start with the wrong starting point or assumption and therefore end up at the wrong destination or conclusion. And it's all about who is the rider on the white horse. That's the first question we need to answer. So we'll come to the answer in a minute. Now, do you notice that he goes out to conquer, but he has a bow with no arrows? Why? And he's given a crown. So, I believe, and most people who take prophecy literally, would say that the first seal is the revelation of who the Antichrist is. And there's going to most likely be a significant period of time for him to consolidate his power and set up his economic and religious system. So, the start of the judgments will be relatively slow but then they'll pick up speed as they go further towards the end of the tribulation period. So it's going to seem like things are going well for a while, maybe for a year or two years, who knows. But it's going to end in war. And just for your information and to forewarn you of an incorrect, or what I believe is an incorrect understanding or interpretation of these verses, Some Christians think that the rider on the white horse here in Revelation 6 verses 1 and 2 is Jesus, but I don't believe that it can be, and here's my reason why. There won't be any world wars, or mass death, or famines, or judgments, or false religious systems, or evil world economic systems in Jesus' kingdom, when Jesus returns to set up his kingdom on earth. It just doesn't match what the Old Testament says about what Jesus' kingdom will be like. Jesus' kingdom is the only kingdom where there will be real peace and true justice. It just doesn't make sense that Jesus would come back to earth and cause three quarters of the people to die because of various judgments, with some of them being demonic. So we'll come back to that later. Now in verse 2 it says, And he went out conquering and to conquer. Now remember we asked the question, Why the bow with no arrows? Well, The bow without the arrows means that he uses the threat of war, but not war itself. He uses the threat. He will most likely have most, if not all, of the world's weapons under his control as nations give up their sovereignty. It will be the price they pay for enjoying 
this one world economic system. He is given the wreath or victor's crown. It's a temporary crown made of olive twigs and leaves. Because God allows him to conquer. This is going to be Satan's masterpiece. The counterfeit of Christ. The counterfeit of the true Messiah. And we're going to read other scriptures about this later. So this guy, the Antichrist, is no ordinary person. There has never been on this earth, with the exception of Jesus, a man that will have the kind of powers this man will have. And we know several times much is said about this person. And it often says about him, as a paraphrase, He was given a great mouth with which he would charm the people as well as blaspheme God. And Revelation chapter 30 verses 1 to 8 is a good reference for that one, amongst many. In other words, he is going to be a mesmerizing speaker. Every passage about him affirms that he will be someone who is electrifying as a speaker. Now, if you watch Adolf Hitler, he mesmerized the Germans with his speeches, but he will have nothing on the Antichrist. Now, it also says, and he went out conquering and to conquer. What this means is that he is enjoying one success after another, one victory after another. It will be a rapid climb to the top. Now, all these seals are a judgment. So, how is this first seal, the revealing of the Antichrist, a judgment? Well, Personally, I think this is the worst judgment of all. This judgment is people falling under the spell of a man who is indwelt by Satan himself. This is mass deception. This is a dangerous deception. This is a deadly deception. And that's why I think that this is the worst judgment of all. It will cost people their eternal destinies. So we have a basic understanding of who this is talking about, the Antichrist, and how he will rise to power. So let's take a closer look at the details in these two verses and also link this to other passages that describe the Antichrist so we know for sure that he is the Antichrist. So let's go back to verse 1. I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals. So, the Lamb. It's Jesus opening the seals. He opens all seven of the seals. So, from the previous chapter, we understand this scroll is the history and destiny of mankind and creation, the title deed to the earth. And only Jesus, the Lamb, the Son of Man, had the right to loose the seals on the scroll of the accumulation of history. So, just as a Reminder, we went through this in chapter 5 and the title deed to the earth. It was given to Adam. Adam was given dominion over the earth, but Adam sinned and he gave the ownership of the earth, dominion over the earth, to Satan. That's what happened when Adam sinned. He became a slave to Satan. He became a, a part of Satan's family. And Satan had legitimate control of the earth. He had possession of the title deed to the earth. Now, the only way 
for mankind to be redeemed was for someone to pay the price. And that price was an innocent life. Someone innocent, someone perfect, had to die for the guilty so the guilty could go free. It was a ransom. The scriptures say that Jesus is our ransom. He ransoms us. He redeems us from the slave market of sin. And so when Jesus died on the cross, he brought back the earth and also all the people on it. And since that time, the title deed to the earth has been in the hand of the Father, but it has not been used yet. It has not been exercised. Jesus has not exercised his right to come and take control of the earth, to rule the earth himself. What we find now is man is still in rebellion against God, and Satan is still allowed to have control of this earth, limited, of course, by what the Father allows, as we will see as we go through. So basically, another little thing we should be understanding is that all these seals and all the things that happen, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments, they all happen before the scroll is opened. So the consummation of history or prophecy is the second coming of Christ. So these judgments come before the second coming of Christ, the consummation, the final completion of history itself. These are the preparation for the second coming of Christ. And that happens in chapter 19 when Jesus comes back. And that's called the consummation, the, the end of all things. The finale. So as each seal is opened, it is carried out, with some of them showing progressive action or cause and effect, as we'll see later. The main point is that they are sequential, with one happening after the other. And as I said before, another thing to notice is that Jesus is the one opening the seals. And we know from here and from the rest of Revelation that Jesus is in heaven for the entire tribulation. And that's another reason why he can't be the rider on this first horse, because he's the one in heaven who's opening the seals. He's not riding down on the horse. Now, again in verse 1, it says, And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come and see. Now, I mentioned this before. Each of the first four seals are associated with one of the four living creatures that we learned about Revelation 4 and 5. So I'm just going to quickly go back and just remind us of who these living creatures are and what they look like and their ministry. So Revelation 4, 7 and 8. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So these living creatures are cherubim, are very high-ranking angels. Okay, that's a title that these high-ranking angels have. And we also see them described in Ezekiel chapter 1 and Ezekiel chapter 10, 
when Ezekiel sees a vision of Jesus, the Son of Man. So, the first living creature is responsible for giving the command for the white horse. The second living creature gives the command for the red horse, and so forth. Also in verse 1, the word come can also be translated go forth. So it's like these four mighty angels are authorizing or sending off these four horsemen. And I like what David Guzek says about behold a white horse in verse 2. He says, If one were to take their interpretive clues more from cowboy movies than from the Bible, it would be easy to believe that the rider on the white horse is Jesus. Jesus does return on a white horse in Revelation 19.11-16, but this is a satanic dictator who imitates Jesus. And that's the end of that quote. So just remember that the prefix anti doesn't mean opposite, but rather counterfeit. So the Antichrist is opposite Jesus in intent and character, but as far as his appearance and as far as his ministry, he will be very similar to Jesus. He will do everything he can to imitate Jesus, to convince people that he is the Messiah. And so he will cause many to be deceived. And he says he will come all power and signs and lying wonders. Hear that? Lying wonders. We'll read that verse later. So coming back to this, you know, who is this rider on the first white horse here? The first horse, the white horse. I'll read you this quote. It says, Bible students take note. Here we reach an interpretive crossroads of the book of Revelation. You can tell much about how a person understands this book and God's prophetic plan by seeing how they understand this first writer. Those who interpret prophecy allegorically think Revelation is mostly a book of history and believe that this writer is Jesus, the Apostles or the Roman Empress. Those who interpret prophecy literally believe that this is a prophetic passage yet to be fulfilled and so understand this writer to be the Antichrist. We recently spent two weeks going through Daniel 9, 24-27 and various other scriptures showing that Daniel's 70th week cannot have been fulfilled already and so must still be future. Those messages were titled The Scriptural Basis for the Tribulation. In summary, the last week or seven in Daniel 9.27 is the last seven years allocated to Israel. And so just to remind us of what we studied, what we read, a total of 490 years, 70 times 7 years, were allocated to Israel after the Babylonian captivity, at the end of which Jesus would return and set up his kingdom on earth. That's Daniel 9.24. 483 years of the 490 years have already come to pass, being completed on the very day that Jesus rode in on the donkey, as predicted in Daniel 9.25, where it says that there will be 69 of those sevens of years until Messiah the Prince. Then in Daniel 9.26 there is a gap or pause when Jesus would be crucified or cut off and the temple destroyed, which happened about 27 years later in AD 70. And we are still in that gap or pause. It's called the Church Age. But soon after the rapture, when the Antichrist confirms a covenant with Israel, Daniel 9.27, then the Israel clock starts ticking again. And God will once again use Israel as a light to the Gentiles. And the last seven years of history, as we know it, 
with man ruling the earth will come to pass, will come to an end. And at the end of those seven years, Jesus returns with the church, all riding white horses. So it says in verse 2, he went out conquering and to conquer. So how will this one riding a white horse, carrying a bow, and wearing a crown of olive branches conquer? Well, he'll come as a peacemaker. So one of the first cross-references we're going to look at is Daniel 8, 23-25. And it says there, At the end of their rule, when their sin is at its height, a fierce king, a master of intrigue, will rise to power. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause a shocking amount of destruction and succeed in everything he does. He will destroy powerful leaders and devastate the holy people, that's Israel. He will be a master of deception and will become arrogant. He will destroy many without warning. He will even take on the prince of princes in battle, but he will be broken, though not by human power. Jesus also said, I come in my Father's name, and you receive me not. But another will come in his own name, and him you shall receive. And that's John 5.43. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. So, how did Jesus come? He came meekly on a donkey. And what did Israel and the world say? We will not have this man rule over us. So, who will Israel and the world get instead? The Antichrist. So it doesn't get much clearer than this. Israel as a nation, especially at the start of the tribulation, and also most of the world for the entire seven-year tribulation, will embrace the Antichrist as both a political and spiritual messiah. So if we take or assume the rider of the white horse in Revelation 6 to be the final Roman satanic dictator over men, we see that he'll be more terrible than all previous dictators were. He will rule over men, the whole world, as a false messiah, and lead man in organized rebellion against God, just like Nimrod did, his first predecessor. And that's why he is often called the Antichrist. Now, who has heard of Nimrod before? Well, the idea of a satanic dictator over men goes all the way back to Nimrod. He is the ruler over Babel in the plain of Shinar in Genesis chapter 10 verses 8 to 14. And it says in those verses that he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And this has a sense that he was a mighty hunter of men and that this was offensive to the face of God. Basically, Nimrod attempted to unite all mankind in a false religion and economic system at Babel. He was in open rebellion against God. But God came down and confused the languages, and so prevented this from happening at the time. But this evil event will come to fruition during the tribulation. What Nimrod started, but failed at doing, the Antichrist possessed and empowered by Satan, will finish and will be successful in doing. The world will get what it wants, and it will be terrible. Sometimes the worst thing that God can give us is what we want, because our sinful human nature naturally desires those things that hurt and kill us. 
Also in verse 1 it says, come and see. The modern political and social scene around us today is certainly set for the emergence of such a political leader. All that waits is for the Lord to allow it in his timing after he takes his church from this earth. Now what scriptures do we have that show this to be true? Well, we can go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1-12. to 12. And this is all about the second coming and the Antichrist. So, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 to 12. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the second coming, and our gathering together to him, that is, the rapture, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ, that is, the tribulation, or the day of the Lord of Jacob's trouble, had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day, the tribulation, will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin, the Antichrist, is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining that he, the Antichrist, may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness, or evil, is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one, the Antichrist, will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. That's the second coming of Christ. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And you can see Revelation 13, 13-17, verse 11. And for this reason God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So basically this passage is giving us this situation back in the early church, back in like AD 52, where someone had written a letter and it seems as if they'd signed it like it was a false letter, signed as it were by Paul, and saying, we're in the tribulation and people were frightened because they thought they'd missed the rapture. Because the rapture comes before the tribulation, you see, that's what Paul taught. And I just want to spend a bit of time going through some of these key points in this passage in Thessalonians here, in Second Thessalonians 2, 1 to 12. It gives us a lot of information about the Antichrist and what has to happen before he can be revealed during the tribulation. First, I want you to consider verse 5, where it says, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Well, if you read the book of Acts, Paul was only in Thessalonica for three weeks, and yet he was teaching end times, including the tribulation, the Antichrist, the rapture, and the second coming, as part of his basic or boot camp doctrine. When he started up the church, 
he started with these doctrines. Of course, the doctrines of salvation and things as well. But this was a part of his normal teaching. And so this tells us that these are things that every Christian should know. Now the background or context of this passage, as I mentioned before, is that believers were told by some false teachers, most probably signing a letter as if Paul wrote it, a fraudulent letter, and saying that they were in the tribulation, which meant that they had missed the rapture. And Paul tells them not to listen to such false teaching and reminds him of what he taught them previously. So verse 7 is the main verse I want to draw your attention to. It says, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Now most commentators agree that this is referring to the Holy Spirit. Let me explain this. Today, the Holy Spirit dwells in believers. As believers, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Today, in the church age, the Spirit chooses to do His work in the world, mainly through us, the church. When the church is raptured, then the influence of the Holy Spirit is effectively removed from the earth. And David Guzik comments on this verse. He says, taken out of the way. We should not think that the Holy Spirit would leave the earth during the Great Tribulation. He will be present on the earth during the Great Tribulation because many are saved, sealed, and serve God during this period. See Revelation 7, 3-14 and 14-1-5. And this can't happen without the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is taken out of the way, not removed. So back to Revelation 6, 1. The main point of the first seal is that the Antichrist, this evil world dictator, will be revealed. The first seal open brings the world's most evil dictator to prominence. We learned last week that the 17th seal of Daniel 9 begins when this dictator will confirm a covenant with the many, referring to the Jewish people. It's the many. So the Jewish people, Daniel 9.27. So just to make it clear, these four horsemen of the apocalypse the four horsemen of Revelation chapter 6, are connected with the 70th week of Daniel and the Great Tribulation itself. This initial emergence of the Antichrist, connected with what we know about this leader from Daniel 9, shows that these four horsemen are connected with Daniel's 70th week and with the Great Tribulation. So all this is future. Now, Revelation 6 verse 2 continues with, and a crown was given to him. Now, the Greek word translated crown is stephanos. A diadem is a permanent crown. A stephanos, like it is here, on the other hand, is a wreath made of olive branches that only lasts a short while. Now, in contrast, Jesus, according to Revelation 19, when he comes back, he'll be wearing a diadem, a permanent crown. In fact, many of them. So the Stephanos was given to athletes who won in the Olympics. It was a temporary wreath. It was a victory wreath. But the diadem is given to those who have true authority. Jesus has true authority, true glory. He is the King of kings, Lord of lords. He wears a diadem, not a Stephanos. 
Verse 2 continues, and he went out conquering and to conquer. And as I said before, this means that the Antichrist will have one victory after another. His rise to the top will be very rapid. So let's move on to the second seal judgment. And that is the conflict on earth. So verse 3, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out. And it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth and that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. So the red horse following the white horse of the Antichrist is war. Anyone who thinks there can be true political solutions to the world problems is, very sadly, mistaken. Politics is solely about whites. You guys will understand this. What is politics about? Politics is about gaining and maintaining power. That's it. It's corrupt. James says in verses 4, 1 and 2, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members? Desires for power and property? So notice that this writer didn't need to bring war and destruction. All he needed to do was to take peace from the earth. Once his peace, which is God's gift to man, was taken, men quickly rush in with war and destruction. We must remember that peace between men and among nations is a gift from God. It is not the natural state of relations between men. And it was granted. This authority was granted to the horsemen. This is directly or indirectly the judgment of God. God is authorizing this. God is commanding this. In verse 4 it says that people should kill one another. Our modern age is marked by war and conflict. Have a guess how many wars there have been since World War II. There's quite a few. Yeah. So since World War II, there have been more than 150 wars of some kind in the world, and that number is going up all the time. And at any given time, there may be some three dozen armed conflicts taking thousands of lives yearly. The nations of the world often spend more than $1 trillion, probably more than $2 trillion now, that was an old estimate, on military expenditures each year. So we have all this armory, and World War Three is going to be a war like no other. And it continues in verse 4, and there was given to him a great sword. So this sword is a symbol of war. It's the Roman sword. They were the most fierce army. They were the most successful army. It's like the army with the best equipment, like the equivalent of the best fighter plane or the best tank today, undefeatable. So, now we come to the third seal judgment, which is scarcity or famine. When he opened the third seal, verse 5, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. 
So biblically, the oil and the wine symbolize luxury. You see, the wealthy of the world somehow continue to get wealthier even in times of war and famine. This has been true also during COVID. The rich even profit from pestilence while the rest suffer. Verse 5 says, A black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And these scales symbolized the need to carefully measure and ration food. And this speaks of a time of scarcity or famine. And it continues, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. So, we're talking about a day's wage to buy the ingredients for a loaf of bread. So this describes a time of famine when life will be reduced to the barest necessities. You spend your entire income on just buying a loaf of bread. So we often see great famine in the world today, yet fewer people suffer from hunger today than 100 years ago. That's interesting, eh? I didn't realise that. However, understanding the world's precarious ecological balance, it would not take much to plunge the world into the kind of scarcity and inequality mentioned here. A nuclear war with all its pollution and destruction would easily disrupt the world's food supply. But the scripture continues in verse 5, Do not harm the oil and the wine. So, (laughs) the nicer things will be available for those who can afford them. There will still be the oil and the wine that should not be harmed. World War III will not completely destroy the earth. So now we come to the fourth seal. It's widespread death on the earth. So verses 7 and 8 in Revelation 6. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. So, a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was death. So, this last writer shows that there will be a tremendous death toll from the dictatorship, war, famine, and other calamities described by the previous three horsemen. Our modern age has seen hundreds of millions killed by dictators, war, and famine. Yet, all that will pale in comparison to the death toll coming in the wake of this ultimate dictator. You know, it's no wonder that Jesus said of this time, For then there will be great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. That's Matthew twenty-four, twenty-one. It says also power in verse 7, Power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill. So power was given to the horsemen. It was given by God. So, It might seem like all hell is breaking loose on earth, but God is very much in control. He holds the scroll, and he is the one opening the seals. And we're going to see that he is justified and fair in doing this as we go through. And the next judgment shows us why. The fifth seal judgment in verses 9 to 11 says, When he opened the fifth Seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. 
And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer, until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who would be killed as they were, was completed. So things are going very badly. The bow of the horseman on the white horse is broken. Blood flows. Famine follows. Disease and sickness run rampant. So who does the world blame? The believers who come to Christ during the tribulation. Now this is not a new concept. In the days of the Black Plague, one out of every four people died in those areas, like through Europe and that. The one group of people spared was the Jews. Now today we know it was because they were simply following the biblical principles of hygiene. But their contemporaries, the people who lived around them, they were convinced that the Jews were the reason for the plague, and so they persecuted them. I believe the same will be true in the tribulation. Amid sicknesses and blood and economic disharmony and war, believers will be martyred. It reminds me of the uh, time when Nero burnt Rome and then he blamed the Christians and there was a massive persecution against them then. They were kicked out of Rome and they had to flee. That would be nothing on this. Also keep in mind that the Antichrist will be initiating a one-world religion as a way to control people, which we will see later, and very likely the penalty for non-compliance will be death. It continues in verse 9, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. So, slain, killed. And that the souls were under the altar emphasizes that the lifeblood was poured out as an offering to God. And this idea comes from Leviticus chapter 4 verse 7, And he shall pour the remaining blood at the base of the altar of the burnt offering. So when they offered a sacrifice, most of the blood was poured at the base of the altar of the burnt offering. And verse 9 continues, Who had been slain for the word of God, they died because they held true to the word of God, because they trusted in the living God. And verse 10, And they cried with a loud voice, These souls in heaven cried out for vengeance, it says, until you judge and avenge our blood. Now we don't usually think of God's people crying out, for vengeance. But here they made their cry to God and they leave the matter with him. So, what does God say? Vengeance is mine. I will repay. Okay. So it's not up to us to get vengeance, but we leave it in God's hands. And God is a fair judge. He must punish the guilty. And we must remember that God cares about his people. He is deeply moved when his people are persecuted. He will set it right. Think about Psalm 116 verse 15. It says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. It isn't wrong for God's people to ask him to do what he promised to do. The blood of Abel cried out from the ground for vengeance, Genesis 4.10, as did the blood of unavenged murders in the land of Israel, Numbers 35-33. Justice must be done. And verse 11, it says, It was said to them that they should rest a little while longer. These saints were instructed to wait. How long must they wait? 
until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who would be killed as they were, was completed. This may mean that they should wait until all God's appointed martyrs are killed. Or, if you notice the words, the number of, in verse 11, are supplied by the translators, they're in italics. So it might not be the number it's referring to, it could be the character of the remaining martyrs on the earth is perfected and complete. So the trials are transforming people, the trials are growing people, they're growing their faith, they're transforming their character to be more like Christ, more godly. And it is character, the way that one lives, that makes a martyr or a witness, not the way that one dies. Either way, it will still be at the end of the tribulation. So now we come to the sixth seal, judgment. So I'm going to read from Revelation 6, 12 through to 17. I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth, as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, and every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Now, just as a side note here, I've got a quote from Hal Lindsay. There are those who say the wrath of the Lamb, the real tribulation, does not happen until midway into the seven-year period. They believe the church is raptured immediately before Antichrist enters the temple, demanding to worship his God. Adherence to this view, called the mid-tribulation or pre-wrath rapture, would do well to read Revelation 6 more carefully, because verse 16 makes it clear that the wrath of the Lamb occurs at the beginning of the tribulation, not halfway through. Pray that you may be found worthy to escape all of these things. That's what Jesus taught in his Olivet Discourse. He didn't teach that you may be found worthy to escape halfway through. <laughs> That's Luke 21.36. So how is one found worthy? You guys should know this. It's very simple. We must be found in Christ. We must be born again. We must have our sins forgiven. It's only by being in Christ, by being born again, by being saved, by accepting God's gift of pardon that we can be made clean in God's sight. Verse 12, a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth. So, in the Bible, celestial disturbances are often connected with the coming of the Messiah. And for example, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Zephaniah, and Jesus himself all describe such things. So I'm just going to read two examples. The first is Zephaniah, chapter 1, verse 14 to 16. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There, the mighty men shall cry out. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. And Joel 2, 10-11 
The sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars diminish their brightness, for the day of the Lord is great and terrible. Who can endure it? Now, another side note here. Those who regard these events as history, those who take prophecy as allegorical and not literal, they have to take these verses and they have to greatly spiritualize or allegorize them. And I want to give you an example of, of the lengths that people go to who do not take prophecy literally, what the lengths they have to go to to spiritualize these things and make them fit. So, Adam Clark, who said that this great earthquake was a most stupendous change in the civil and religious constitution of the world. If it referred to Constantine the Great, the change that was made by his conversion to Christianity might be very properly represented on the emblem of an earthquake. So do you see what he's saying here? He thinks the whole book of Revelation is historical, is not future, it's all allegorical, and so he has to spiritualize everything. And so this mighty earthquake is Constantine becoming a Christian in his eyes. So this is why I think it's better and much more consistent to have a literal understanding of prophecy. Now it says, The sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth. Now what does this mean? Well, here's something that will help us to understand this. It's best to regard these pictures as real, but poetic. John is not using technically precise scientific language, but simply he is describing what he saw. And it's important that we understand or we remember that John is literally writing about what he heard and what he saw. He is describing things to us that we may not have seen yet. Now we might not know or understand what causes the appearance of stars falling from heaven to earth, but we do know that it will look like that. So whether this is a supernatural phenomenon or a natural phenomenon, we don't know. But I'll give you a couple of suggestions that people have made. Some suggest that it is a meteorite shower. So imagine the sky full of shooting stars, meteorites burning up as it enters the atmosphere, and some of them actually hitting the Earth, causing this shaking. Another suggestion is it describes a nuclear war with the missiles streaking to the Earth, being the stars of heaven falling to the Earth, and the atmospheric pollution causing the sun to be darkened and the moon to become like blood just like a large bushfire does today. So whatever causes this, we don't know, but we do know what it will look like. Also, the word translated earthquake is seismos, which means to shake. And this is not the usual word used to describe an earthquake. So something is going to cause the earth to shake. As it says in uh, verse 14, every mountain and every island was moved out of its place. So whether it's an earthquake or something else that causes the earth to shake, it's going to be a violent shaking. And what's the effect? Well, verse 15, And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, and every slave and free man hid themselves. All people are equally brought low by God's wrath. The judgment is all the more profound because it is the wrath of the Lamb. 
Verse 16 continues, Hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. They hid not only from the terror of the judgment, but from the face of him who sits on the throne. So what sinners dread most is not death, but the revealed presence of God. I like that. What sinners dread most is not death, but the revealed presence of God. That's from a guy called Sweet. S-W-E-T-E. People will understand that even those who don't believe, they will understand that the judgments that are befalling them are of divine origin. Just like in Egypt, God will demonstrate his power and make it clear that he is God. People will have to choose to repent of their evil ways and follow God, or continue in their evil ways and follow Satan. Let me make this really clear. In the tribulation, it's going to be very clear that God is real. People will have to make a choice. But it's not a choice based on, well, I don't know if God is real. The choice is based on whether or not they are willing to love righteousness or they want to hold on to their evil ways. John chapter 3 tells us that the reason people don't repent is because they love darkness rather than light. And they refuse to give up their evil ways and refuse to come into the light that they may be saved. So in the tribulation, it makes it clear as we go through Revelation as well, that people refuse to repent of their evil, their sorceries, their murders, their thefts, and all those things. They loved the darkness. And halfway through, this choosing not to repent will mean that the people will take the mark of the beast. This is a halfway point of the tribulation when this happens. And at that point, their fate is sealed. They will spend eternity in the lake of fire. So, summary. We've been through the six seals. The tribulation is about to begin. The Antichrist is revealed and comes to power. Remember? The seven years doesn't start until he signs the covenant. That's why I say the tribulation is about to begin. So the Antichrist is revealed before the tribulation begins, but after the rapture, because when he signs a peace treaty, we definitely know it's him. Well, we won't be there, but the world will know it's him if they read the Bible. So the first seal is the Antichrist is revealed and comes to power. The second seal, he promises peace, but the result is war, a world war. And Christ predicted that as well. When they say peace, peace, sudden destruction will come. The third seal, the world war causes famine and disease. As a result of the war, famine and disease, and wild beasts, a quarter of the world's population is killed. The fifth seal tells us that during this time, there is a massive persecution of tribulation saints, those who believe during the tribulation. Many are martyred or killed for the word of God and for being faithful in the testimony. And the sixth seal, there is a massive earthquake and other cosmic disturbances and the people of the earth recognize that these judgments are from God and they fear God's judgments and they fear God's presence. 
Now I've got a quote from Valvord about the second and third seals. The wars and famines predicted in the second and third seals are not unfamiliar events in the history of the world. But never before, since the time of Noah, has a judgment so devastating been consummated as to destroy one-fourth of the earth's population at one stroke. Consider that the earth's population is about 8 billion people. One quarter of that is 2 billion people will die in these first six seal judgments. 2 billion people. So as far as the seals are concerned, they will be an intense amplification of bad conditions often experienced through history. God will give mankind over to his fallen nature and more. But this is not the case with some of the trumpet and bowl judgments which are coming up. They are completely unique manifestations of God's judgment. So, to finish, I want to ask the question that this chapter finishes with. Who is able to stand? He's talking about the judgment, the wrath of the Lamb, and who is able to stand. So, the answer is that only the believer can stand before God and be spared his judgment, the one who is justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. I've got some verses here to demonstrate that and to encourage you, if you are saved, to encourage you in your faith. And if you're not, to show you that you need to be saved so you too can stand against the evil and against eternal damnation. When you come to judgment, you can stand. You will not fall. So, Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Notice that we stand in grace. We have access by faith. We believe, and then we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. It's not through our own works. It's a gift we receive. We are justified by faith, simply by believing in what he has done for us and not relying on what we can do for him. We cannot be good enough. All right, the next one is 1 Corinthians 15 verse 1. I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, and in which you stand. What's the gospel? It's we are saved by grace through faith. We stand in this truth. We are saved by grace through faith. So, 1 Peter 5.12, testifying that this is a true grace of God in which you stand. So again, we stand in the grace of God. It's only by his unmerited favor that we can receive this gift of pardon, this gift of forgiveness, and be declared not guilty in God's sight. So what this means is that the believer can stand in the face of this great wrath of God because Jesus already bore the wrath the believer deserved. So that's talking about the overall judgment. We are going to not stand at the great white throne judgment. We are not going to stand before God in judgment. We are going to be delivered from that judgment, the eternal damnation. But there's a more specific application 
and it's talking about the wrath poured out during the tribulation. So let's have a look at that. The church, I'm talking about the church now, we can stand because God has not appointed us to wrath but unto salvation. And First Thessalonians 5, 9-10 says, For God did not appoint us to wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us that whether we wake or sleep we should live together with him. Therefore comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. So notice that. This is the context of the rapture. It says that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. This is talking about us being raptured and receiving our resurrection bodies and living together with Christ. Therefore comfort and edify one another. Why comfort? It's not just that we're going to be saved, and we are saved, but we're going to not go through the tribulation. The context of these verses is that God here is promising that at the rapture, whether alive or dead, we will receive our glorified bodies and live together with him. The comfort here is that we will be spared, or we will escape the extreme pain and suffering that will be experienced by those who go through the tribulation. So where is Christ during the tribulation? Well, in heaven, and therefore so shall we be. Also remember the promise Jesus made to the church in Revelation 3.10. Revelation 3.10 says, Because you have kept my command to persevere, and remember this is addressed to the church, right? Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. So, precious brothers and sisters in Christ, we'll be standing in heaven with Jesus. We are worthy to escape God's wrath, both eternal and the wrath poured out during the tribulation, because of what Christ has done for us and our acceptance of his gift of pardon and forgiveness. So comfort one another with these words. So next week, well, we're not the only ones standing. In chapter 7, we're going to see three other groups who will be standing in the day of the wrath of the Lamb, but they will be in the tribulation, not kept out of it like the church. And next week we see God remembering mercy in judgment. God is a good God. He's so merciful. He's a good God. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for showing us what's going to happen in the future. Lord, you are fair. Lord, we're going to find out that what you do is fair. As we talked briefly last week about when the witnesses were killed and all the, the martyrs who have been killed, this world hates you as in rebellion against you and it deserves to be judged. It's murdering your children, your people. It deserves to be judged. But still, some of those people who are those murderers, they can still choose to believe in you, they can still choose to stop the rebellion, they can repent of their rebellious ways and they can come to know you as their Lord and Savior they can receive the gift of forgiveness and that gift is open to everybody, no matter how much wrong they have done no matter how much they have hated you and rebelled against you just like the Apostle Paul, he was a murderer and persecuting the church, but God chose him as an example so I pray for anyone who is listening today, no matter how much you are rebelling or have rebelled, 
it is never too much. God wants to forgive you. He already has paid the price for all your sins. Just receive that gift of forgiveness and come to him humbly, choosing to leave the old life behind and to walk with him. And you will experience eternal life from that point on. And your eternal destiny is guaranteed. All because of what Jesus did on the cross when he paid your penalty for your sin. And his perfect life was transferred to you. So now when God the Father sees you, once you're saved, he sees you as perfect. There is no more condemnation. There is now no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord. Amen.